Sending food back in restaurants. This is good. I remember my dad years ago asking the wait person, could the chef possibly have the chicken just run through the soup once more? Uh, someone else says, my Dutch friend makes a fantastic recipe with kale and the mashed potato, enough to make me want to grow it, says Pip. It's stampoot, as it's not stampot, as we said. My mum cooked mashed spud and curly cabbage, which we ate with smoked sausage or rock, rookwurst. Rookwurst? Lashings of butter, salt and pepper, mustard, a favourite memory of childhood. Uh, add chopped parsley, says Diana. It's great. Yes, I'm sure most of us have tried adding chopped parsley. If only there was one book about success in life, we'd all have read it a long time ago and we'd be doing well. We'd have ironed out our crinkled, obdurate weaknesses, realised our strengths. Life would be in the fast lane. Alas, there are about 15,903 books about achieving success, many of them top sellers, actually. But how much difference many of them make to people's lives, of course, is always hard to judge. Adam Grant takes his books right up the New York Times bestseller lists. The best-known one is probably Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. His latest is called Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things. Adam Grant defines success a little differently, as we'll discover. He was once an advertising director and a professional magician, also a top springboard diver in his time. And to shorten the long story, Adam Grant entered academia, published a series of papers in academic journals, became an associate professor at the Wharton Business School at the University of Pennsylvania. He achieved tenure at age 28 was voted the most popular professor year after year, and now he's a one-man life advice industry and the host of a couple of podcasts, Work Life and Rethinking. Dr. Adam Grant, hello to you. Hello, Jim. Great to be here. Please call me Adam. Uh, I'll call you Adam. You've been so successful yourself, it must be a measure of success for us that we've managed to get you on as a guest, actually. Well, I'm honoured to be here, and uh, my Kiwi friends told me I had to do this. <laughs> oh, bless. Set out to stumble in your life, build likely failures into your working week. You do a version of this. First question, easier said than done, because I can think of a number of areas where I don't want to stumble and experiment. And this is one of them. I mean, what if I've decided to come into this interview without trying to find out much about your book? Would you cheerfully chalk that up to my personal growth? Maybe. that This could be a way to unlock your hidden potential, Jim. We'll see. Look, I think I, I don't think anybody enjoys failure. Uh, whenever I hear people say, we have to celebrate failure, I'm like, I, I don't know about you, but when something goes wrong, I want to turn into an actual bear and hibernate for a few months. So I, th I think what we do need to do, though, is normalize failure. Because if we're unwilling to make mistakes, we end up refusing to take risks and try new things, and we stay in our comfort zone. Uh, and that means we don't challenge ourselves or grow. So the way that I've tried to apply this is to say, you know, each year I'm setting an expectation that I'm going to do three projects that fail. And I'm not aiming for failure, right? What I'm doing is I'm allowing myself to have a budget for failure, knowing that if my failure rate is zero, then my experimentation rate is also going to be zero. Um, and that makes it a lot easier to tolerate it when something does crash and burn. You know, even just a, a social media post that, you know, that lands to crickets, uh, I can say, all right, check, that's one failure this week. Uh, and it doesn't feel as bad as if I expected everything to succeed. 
You're unusual. I mean, there are many occasions in life, as you say, that we want to get right. You persevered with public speaking until you could do it well. I think that's a good example because many people are paranoid about getting public displays dead right first time, you know. I, I've definitely lived that. So I was, I was afraid of public speaking as an introvert and also as a shy person. It was extremely uncomfortable for me. And I think one of the most devastating moments of my career was after I taught a session for Air Force generals and colonels. And one of them wrote afterward, I gained nothing from this session, but I trust the instructor gained useful insight. <laughs> and the instructor did. I certainly did. I, I learned that I had no business in front of those those leaders. Uh, no, the the actually the bigger lesson was that I needed to take my critics who were attacking my worst self, and my cheerleaders, uh, some of my friends and family and colleagues who were just applauding my best self, and turn them into coaches who could see my potential and help me become a better version of myself. And one of the ways that I learned to do that was instead of asking f- for feedback, to seek advice. Um, and there's research that, that supports this. So when you ask people for feedback, they tend to tell you what you did right or what you did wrong, and that may not be very actionable. Whereas when you ask for advice, people give you suggestions that you can put into practice right away. And when I did that, one of the suggestions I got was to call out the elephant in the room that you know, as somebody who is much younger and less experienced than, than these military leaders, um, you know, instead of talking about my credentials and my qualifications, um, I should just admit that you know, I wasn't I wasn't their usual instructor, and so that advice turned out to be extremely valuable for the next next session that I taught. I remember walking in and and just opening by saying, "I know what you all are thinking right now. What could I possibly learn from a professor who's twelve years old?" <laughs> and it really broke the ice, and I got much better feedback afterward. Can I just pick you up on the find someone to talk to point and, and don't look backwards, ask for advice about you know, how best to go forward, which I think is uh, a very good idea. Where do you find these people? I mean, you're an introvert. I'm sure extroverted people can find them everywhere in the workplace because they chat uh, probably more than introverted people. Where do you find these people typically, do you think? Well, I think, I think anyone you interact with is a potential coach. And what I've tried to do is just signal that openness. So every time I give a speech, uh, the first few people I'll run into backstage, I'll ask, you know, what's the one thing I could do better? And some people are hesitant to answer. So then sometimes I have to criticize myself out loud and say, you know, I think I was long-winded in this section. And, you know, I think these couple of jokes fell flat. And then they realize I'm not just claiming I'm open to advice. I'm actually proving that I could take it. Uh, I think that's that's a good starting point for me. Adam Grant, Hidden Potential, The Science of Achieving Greater Things, and he's with us. This is an example I've heard you asked about on a number of the American talk shows. How much money you'll earn in your 20s, and I think possibly later, can be predicted by how much experience as a teacher uh, your first teachers, probably in early childhood, how much exper- experience they had at what they do. What is the connection, please? To me, this is a staggering finding. Uh, so economists have discovered that, yes, you can predict how much income somebody earns as an adult from how experienced their kindergarten teacher was. And Jim, my assumption was that the experienced kindergarten teachers were giving a cognitive advantage to their students, that they would be better at teaching math and reading, and then those students basically got a head start. It is true 
that the experienced teachers were better at teaching math and reading. But in the next year or two, the other kids caught up. Where the lasting advantage came was not in cognitive skills, but character skills. What the experienced kindergarten teachers did was they instilled proactivity, being pro-social, discipline, determination uh, in their, their students. And if you want to then predict their adult success, those character skills were about two and a half times more important than the cognitive skills. Yeah, I found that a very interesting finding, as everybody does. So it's, it, the, the data's in on that. It's not just one study, as it were. Yeah, this is, this is a finding that's been replicated in a, in a whole series of studies with large samples. And I think we, we really underestimate the importance of character skills because they sound like soft skills. Uh, we think about them as, as fluffy, as fuzzy, as difficult to quantify. But I think that you know, in, at some level, um, the, the hardest skills to measure are actually the ones that matter most. Because at the end of the day, it, does, it doesn't really matter what you know today. What matters is your capacity to grow tomorrow. Um, and there, you know, who you are, not what you know, is what we should be paying the most attention to. I'm jumping back and forth in your book in the time I've, we've got together. I once talked to an interesting man. He had been a family doctor and then he switched to therapy. He said to me once, if you want to know who you really are in order to become a better, more successful version of yourself, get three people you know and trust to write an A4-sized page about you, and in those three pages will be everything you need to know about yourself. I've never done it, but I think you would agree with him. It's, it's hard to disagree with the value of having other people hold up a mirror. And there's a, there's a version of this that I really love that some of my colleagues have studied. It's called the Reflected Best Self Exercise, led by Laura Morgan Roberts. And the assignment is to recognize that just as you have blind spots, which are usually weaknesses that, that you can't see, you also have bright spots, strengths that are invisible to you. Uh, and that's where your hidden potential lies. So when you do the Reflected Best Self Portrait, you ask uh, 10 to 20 people who know you well, to write a story about a time when you were at your best. And your job is to see the common themes across the stories and then compose a portrait of who you are when you're at your best. And I've been doing this with students and with leaders for almost two decades now, and they are often blown away to discover that these different people who know them in, in different parts of their lives actually recognize some, some common strengths in them and then they come away from that exercise realizing there are a lot of places where I could use those strengths more effectively. And I think that that is a path to unlocking some of your hidden potential. You redefine success. You've got another idea about what success consists of, uh, an idea different from the one that most of us hold in our heads, I think. Yeah, I, I think for most of my career, I was taught to think about success as achieving your goals. I think that's not enough. Because oftentimes people reach a target and then realize this has undermined a principle that's really important to me. So I've, I've come to see success not just as achieving your goals, but as living your values. I think that if you hit a target and it requires you to compromise one of your values, you've actually failed. Um, and on the flip side, if you fall short of a goal, but you're still living by the principles that matter to you. I, I think you've still succeeded, don't you? I do, but in this competitive world, it can feel like failure, surely. You know, beating your head against a wall, learning a lot as you've gone along in life, but in your own mind, not really having made it, that kind of phenomenon. 
Yeah, I think that's true. I think, and I'm not suggesting, by the way, that, that people should just give up on, on setting goals altogether. I think what we need to do is to make sure that our goals are aligned with our values. Uh, you know, I think the, you know, a common example of, of a disconnect would be somebody sets a goal of getting promoted at work, and then they end up spending all their time in their job and neglecting their, fam- their family. That, that's a failure. So what we need to do in that situation is to say, okay, what am I really after with this promotion? Am I trying to earn more respect? Am I trying to get a raise? Uh, am I trying to change my actual responsibilities at work? And is there, is there a way to pursue those goals without neglecting my family? These are hard choices often. They shouldn't be, should they? One of your values is humility uh, being indispensable to growth. How do you both grow in humility and grow in confidence? Because many people seem to flourish in life without much humility. I mean, I give you, uh, until very recently in his life, Donald Trump. You know, we see all these sorts of people achieving substantially in an era where online success, for example, depends to a large extent on masks. We see that. Well, I think there's there's obviously a difference here between achievement and growth. Uh, I think in, in the long run, it's it's hard to keep improving if you don't have humility. As a, a group of psychologists wrote, uh, learning requires admitting that you have something to learn. And if you're a narcissist, that is a difficult thing to do. It's common for people to miss out on humility because they do think about it as a, a sign of weakness. And they think, if I'm humble, that means I'm going to lack self-esteem or self-confidence. But if you go back to the Latin roots of the word humility, one of the, the original translations comes, it basically boils down to from the earth. Being humble is not having a low opinion of yourself. It's about being grounded, knowing that you're only human, you're fallible, you have weaknesses along with strengths. And if you look at humility that way, it actually becomes possible to have humility and confidence at the same time. In fact, I think it requires tremendous confidence to be secure enough in your strengths to acknowledge your weaknesses. It requires a great deal of confidence in your knowledge to admit what you don't know. And so I think we, we ought to rebrand humility um, as you know, a signal that, that somebody is actually secure as opposed to insecure. Page 88 Adam, uh, the notion of not burnout, which is, of course, a major problem, but bore out. I wonder if you – it's quite a long story in your book, but could you tell us briefly about Evelyn Glennie, the famous percussionist, Dame Evelyn Glennie, deaf from age 12, but she shared the Polar Prize in music with Emmy Lou Harris? Because this is quite a, an illustrative story. Yeah, I, I think Evelyn Glennie is, is extraordinary on many levels. One of the things I learned from her is – yeah, obviously, if you're profoundly deaf, it's it's very difficult to become a world-class musician. And yeah, I think a, a lot of people will you know, just think they have to push themselves through monotonous, repetitive practice over and over and over again, uh, scales and drills, until you can no longer walk. And Evelyn found that that was a really easy way to undermine her passion for music. So she said, look, I'm, you know, I don't want to burn out. But I also don't want to fall victim to what psychologists call bore out, where you're literally bored out of your mind. So what she did was she started introducing novelty and variety into her practice. Um, and probably my favorite way of doing that was she said, let me see if I can harmonize Bach on a snare drum. And whenever she would get bored, she would switch instruments. She would switch tunes. 
Um, and that really kept her engaged. And I think it's, it's been a big source of fuel for now a half century long, illustrious career. Turning the daily grind into daily joy. Yeah, I think that's an important lesson if it can be achieved as well. Okay, quick questions for you. As someone who tries avidly to avoid meetings, they are nevertheless loved by many. (laughs) All that some people seem to do is meet, as you probably know. But you say there's a big cost to meetings. There's a huge cost. Uh, It seems to be the case that we waste about a, a third of our work week in meetings that didn't need to happen that were entirely pointless. Uh, We did a work-life podcast about this recently, and one of my big takeaways was we actually need to be clear about when we need to meet. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, there are only a few reasons that you ever need to gather people together. Uh, We need to come together to decide, to do, to bond, or to learn. If your meeting does not serve one of those purposes, it does not need to happen. When hiring people, you would prioritize trajectory over talent. You would want to read between the lines of any CV. Um, why and how, please? Well, I think the, the why is that you know, oftentimes people don't look like they're going to be future superstars, be, not because they, they lack ability, but because they've lacked opportunity. Um, they've faced adversity. They haven't had the right mentor or teacher or coach. Um, and those challenges can prevent them from actually demonstrating their potential. It, it, it remains hidden. So we want to look at their trajectory as a sign of, of their capacity to grow in the future. And one way to do that is to take the, the idea of grade point average, which I think so many schools and employers rely on, and say, you know what? Your first year grades are actually almost irrelevant if we want to predict your future success. Uh, your second and third year grades become more important. Um, But it's actually the slope, uh, not the average that matters most. And so I think we should be paying less attention to grade point average and more attention to grade point trajectory. The student who struggled in year one and then improved dramatically by year three is a student who has demonstrated tremendous motivation and ability to improve. I noticed from my school there were a lot of guys who were late bloomers who really excelled and and got themselves into – great jobs right across the world, some of them. And I think that, you know, we often neglect that when we're young. We just look at the marks, don't we? We do. And I I think it's such a shame because so many of those people are, you know, are struggling with imposter syndrome or they've just been underestimated or overlooked by people who see them as underdogs. And I think so often we end up judging people's potential by where they start. That's not what counts at the end of the day. It's the distance they can travel. And somebody's talent on day one tells you surprisingly little about where they can land years down the road. On the other hand, just getting back to the earlier point, we talked about beating your head against a wall. There'll be people who will be thinking, I've traveled, you know, believe me, I've traveled and I haven't got much to show from that except high mileage. And every, every, <laughs> everyone overlooked at work, you know, when they're the introvert backbone behind the success that extroverts are basking in the glory of. I mean, life isn't fair, as Margaret Thatcher said. How do you find the satisfaction and perseverance, you know, without seeming profit? A lot of people must go through that. Yeah, I, I think it's really unfortunate that we live in a world that that is, you know, denying many people opportunities who have earned them, um, and not giving a chance to to people based on conditions that are completely outside of their control. Um, I think that one of the mistakes we make is, you know, sometimes we we try to change an entire system and we get discouraged because it's hard. 
Um, I think, you know, if you're in an organization, changing a whole company's culture is daunting, but shifting the culture of your team is doable. And I think starting locally to try to figure out, you know, how can I make sure that the people who, who haven't gotten opportunity can get it is a reasonable place to begin. I think, you know, obviously as individuals, uh, one of the, the things we can't control is, is how other people are going to judge us. We can control though, the progress that we make. And one of the, I guess one of the things I've learned to do over time is to recognize that um, it's so common when, when you get better at something to let your expectations rise with your progress. And that leaves us taking for granted what we've achieved. So one of the things I've learned to do is, is to rewind to the past and ask, okay, you know what? It's not, it's not that easy for me to celebrate writing a book anymore because like, I'm a writer. That's what we do. We write books. And I expect that, you know, I'm going to write a book every few years and that people are going to read it. Um, but if I rewind the clock 10 or 15 years, my younger self would be blown away that I wrote a book, let alone multiple books, would be stunned that there was an audience there that was interested in them. And I think staying in touch with your younger self is an extremely powerful way to be proud of the progress you've made. Yeah, I think that's a remarkably good idea. Look, uh, last question, really, in the time you've got, and thank you for giving us your time. Perfectionism, because a lot of people are like this. I mean, like your friend Malcolm Gladwell, uh, you advocate assiduousness in cultivating expertise. I mean, maybe not 10,000 hours, but when does hard work cross over into perfectionism with presumably its roots in poor self-esteem and imposter syndrome, you know, whatever labels you attach to that mindset. Because you've got your, you've had your own experience with that when you were a springboard diver. And perfectionism is very hard to avoid because early in life you are rewarded for it. Guilty as charged. Yeah, I thought it was an asset in diving. I thought this is going to help me get perfect tens. And instead, I ended up sort of losing the forest in the trees. Uh, I ended up uh, really only doing the things that I felt like I could master and avoiding some of the harder challenges that I needed to take on to improve. And eventually I burned myself out, feeling like I could never do enough to get where I wanted to go. And then one day my coach, Eric Best, sat me down and he said, listen, Adam, uh, 10 is not perfection. There's no such thing as a perfect 10, even in diving, a 10 is for excellence in the rule book. And what we need to do is we need to calibrate what is a realistic goal for each dive that you're doing? So on a basic dive, like a front dive pike, uh, we would aim for seven, seven and a half. When I was trying to learn a new dive, uh, like a, a full twisting two and a half, uh, Eric would say, our goal for this dive is just to get twos and threes, because if you make it, that counts, and you've got to learn to do it before we can learn to do it well. And I, I think this is a life lesson for all of us, that you know you can't get a 10 on on almost anything, let alone everything. It's impossible to get a 10 on everything you do. And so I think we need to decide how important is, you know, is each of the priorities and projects that we're pursuing. And when it really matters, aim for a nine. When it doesn't, learn to accept a six. There's another aspect to that, just quickly. There's poetry in your book, uh, 
hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. There's a wonderful poem by Robert Browning about the life of a perfectionist, Andrea Del Sarto, the Renaissance artist, who never made mistakes, and he could see where Raphael and Michelangelo made theirs, but they were great and he was not. And part of that was that he couldn't fully engage with life. And I think that's just enclosing a major theme in your book that we need to mention. I do too. I, I'm going to have to look up this poem. It, it sounds right up my alley and, and frankly like one that I need to I need to reread multiple times and internalize the message of. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that, I guess Michelangelo jumps to mind for me. I think of, you know, this, this extraordinary image of, of Michelangelo seeing a block of clay and recognizing a statue within it. And the point there is that is not that he's seeing a perfect statue, but that he's seeing possibility that the rest of us miss. I think the the easiest way to squander potential is to overlook the possibilities in the blocks of stone in front of us. Yeah. Rough-hewn though they may be, (laughs) as it were. Exactly. Lovely to talk with you. Thank you for giving us your time, as I said, and, um, and well done on the book. Thank you, Jim. Honored to be here and appreciated you reading so carefully and preparing so thoroughly. And I do not know why you've been watching American talk shows, but <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Adam Grant.